So, Berto, many people have been asking us to do an episode about Enneagram. Lots of patrons, clinicians, lay people, listeners, lots of excitement about Enneagram. So what do you say we get into it, Berto? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I grow dairy-free mushrooms. So I had never even heard of Enneagram until, I don't know, maybe like a year ago when someone asked for us to talk about it. Have, have you heard of it before? I, I heard the word, and I, I thought it was something completely different. I thought it was some medical, like, uh, you know, like a angiogram, you know? Like a, yeah. Yeah. I, I, angiogram. Although, isn't there also something called engrams or something? Engrams. Oh, that was the other thing. I thought this maybe had something to do with uh, Scientology. Don't yeah. they have yeah. something? Yeah. I thought it was something like that. Anyway. And when I looked into it, I have discovered that Enneagram is just as popular or almost as popular as Myers-Briggs. I was surprised at how many people had actually known about it and had taken it. Wow. And I hadn't even heard about it yeah. until recently. And it's only because of the listeners that I would have heard about it at all. Oh. And, uh, you know, I've been in the field 24 years, never heard of Enneagram. And I've, I've read, you know, hundreds of books on personality, and none of them even mention it. And yet, all these people out there are, yeah. you know, my sister, my friends, all the listeners on Facebook, they've all heard about it. So, uh, let's get into a highly controversial theory. Um, on Reddit, someone asked about Enneagram, and they're like, so basically, for those who don't know, Enneagram is a, it's similar to Myers-Briggs. It's a way of trying to... Determine your personality, basically. Personality type. Yeah. And so on Reddit, they're asking, is it scientifically valid? And uh, one person said, Enneagram is the work of modern spiritual teachers and crackpots. <laughs> Another person says, Enneagram is not valid. I was just at an Enneagram seminar. The presenter got lost in the morass of sacred numbers and symbols. Another person writes, Enneagram does, doesn't, doesn't have to be valid. Science isn't the only way to understand reality. People on Facebook, I asked them what they thought about it, listeners. Wait, wait, I love that last one. Well, how so? The uh, science isn't the only way to understand reality, that yeah. comment. I love it in a sarcastic way because it's like, well, if what you're trying to claim is that this system, whatever you call it, Enneagram, uh, sort of predicts something, that's literally science. Now, your science might be right or wrong. It might have predicted. It might not predict it. And then how do you test that it predicts? So it's, it's like you're still trying to use pseudoscience. You just don't realize it. <laughs> Yeah, well, so I'll give my thesis right from, from the start. When I first started looking into it, I, in my field, when you look at the scientific literature, they will say that it's not valid science, mm -hmm. that the when you look at the claims and the system, it doesn't really hold up. But the thing is, is that there's a lot of systems that don't really hold up. Uh, and I'll get into more later as to why that is. There's personality is very difficult to lock down. Also, there's a way to use a system without claiming it has scientific validity and still believe in it and have it be useful. What I'm trying to get at is that for a long time in now, history... I, but do you understand what I'm saying? I, I definitely do. I, and I understand what you're saying. Too. Yeah, because yeah, I'm saying like for a long time in history, we've had things that we didn't know exactly how they worked. 
but we knew that they were reliable, meaning it was repeatable experiments that would over and over work. And we're like, okay, well, that's a thing. That's still science. It's just we don't know the underlying mechanism for it. So imagine that you actually run these tests, and turns out that uh, the predictions you can make using Enneagram results uh, are actually really good, like cons- consistently, test after test after test. You just don't know how it works. Well, that'd be fine. You just don't know how it works. But but th- there's a difference from claiming, hey, we don't have to predict anything. We don't have to be even right about it. Because then, then it's like, then I don't even know what we're talking about. Then what, what are we actually even trying to do this for? Well, I want to get into this later, but in a nutshell... There's a lot of things in psychology that have a hard time lending itself towards any predictions, like psychodynamic theory mm-hmm. or attachment theory to some extent. You know, when we look at people and we measure certain things and we develop a certain theory as to what's going on, it, there's not a strong predicted behavioral uh, connection between, you know, for, for, for later mm-hmm. behavior. I'm not wording that right. But anyway, yeah. and yet a, a lot of clinicians will still use it and still find it to be highly useful and clients will find it to be useful. So now is there some broader natural system there that is really hard to measure given all the factors and all that kind of stuff, uh, perhaps? And, right. and I, so the point is, is that I'll get into this later and I need to move on, is that Enneagram is uh, in that category. Because at first I, I was like, oh, in my field, we've disc- we discounted the Enneagram years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more I actually listen to how people use it, I'm like, okay, even though I don't use this, you know, I, I think it might be able to be used. On Facebook, uh, a lot of positive reviews from the listeners. Lily says, it's the most accurate test I've ever done. Ballas says... All my bad behaviors are explained by it. Adrian says, it's a great tool. I'm type one. It took me a while to come to terms with that. And also the idea of the Enneagram in general, which is typical of type one. <laughs> did, that, did that make sense? It, yeah. took, it took me a while to come to terms with that I'm type one. Yeah. And also the idea of the Enneagram in general, which is typical of type one. Yeah, meaning that a type one might be against doing such things as Enneagram study. Right. Also, I'm a Christian, and I look forward to hearing you discuss it without the typical Christian narrative that has started to surround it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. I didn't know this either, especially within a lot of authors and popular podcasters that currently discuss it. You see a lot of Christians talking about it, workshops also being held at churches, uh, workshops being held at churches, etc. Um, so that's kind of interesting I that, that. that Christians in the Christian community, I have some very spotty speculation about that, that, uh, you know, Christians in certain, certain, you know, areas might feel as though psychotherapy in the field of psychology is too left-leaning or something sure. or, or too against Christianity. Uh, and there's some concrete reasons for that. Like, you know, our field has come forward and say it's completely unethical to, try to um, therapize away the gay. And yeah. for some people, that that's highly hostile to their belief system and their lives. And so Enneagram doesn't, I, this is total speculation, but Enneagram doesn't really come from our field. And so mm. maybe it's more appealing in that way. Uh, also, Enneagram has uh, roots in religion oh. going back uh, centuries. And so maybe hmm. that's why. And, you know, so we'll get into that more later. Colin, our senior Texas Austin correspondent, says, 
Finding out I was a four on the Enneagram scale was very beneficial. I got my family to take it, and our labels made so much sense. It was like a map of our personalities and how they intersected had been laid out for us by an emotional cartographer. That's when I found something else out about the Enneagram scale, Enneagram scale is that it connects people. Okay, but some people not so positive on Facebook. Valerie says, um, I don't hold a lot, of, a lot of confidence in personality tests in general. MD says, as a therapist and a consumer, I find it useful and curious. As a skeptic and scientist, I find it curious and probably limited in reliability and validity. My friend Amy Keith says, I question its validity. I think it's just the Barnum effect, and we'll get into that more later. So we're going to look into this in this episode. What is this theory of personality? What is Enneagram? What is the theory exactly? What's the history? Is it valid? What's the science around it? What type is Umberto? What type is Kirk? I just referred to myself in the third person. <laughs> what type am I? Uh, what type are you out there? We're going to go through all the nine types, and maybe you'll discover something right. about yourself in this episode. Also, how can this model be helpful at all? We're going to talk about the theory, the history. I'm, I'm going to critique it. Uh, we're going to talk about our types. We're going to analyze the people around us. And again, how this might be used to you know help us have more fulfilling lives. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, though. Oh. So if you aren't a patron of the podcast, this episode's going to going to end soon. Can I do a thing where, like, I say, "And my type is," and yeah, then, like ends. That's a cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah. Well, you just did. Ah. So if you want to listen to this whole episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to arguably our 250 best episodes that are only available to patrons. And you don't have to listen to ads. And you also know that certain uh, amount of your pledge goes towards various charities that we support, including scholarships for students who need it in the field. So go to Patreon, do it now, and, you know, listen to the rest of this episode and find out what type you are. That's right. And also, you'll get the benefit that I'll refer to myself in second person the whole rest of the episode. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. So as a caveat, uh, I'm just going to say again, the consensus in my field is that it's not supported by empirical studies. It lacks predictive power. It has very or relatively low retest reliability, depending on the study you're looking at. The authors and the teachers tend to speak in very general terms, which can uh, lend itself to the Barnum effect, which I'll get into later. So I just want to say that up front, because I'm going to go into the theory yeah. as if it's a real thing um, or as if it's helpful, but I just you know have to establish my scientific cred up front. Also, the theory has roots in religion and mysticism, and thus... You know, we need to take that into consideration, uh, you know, pro or con, depending on how you view that out there. And you should, everyone should know, as I said earlier, that this theory isn't discussed in my field, at least often enough for me to have ever heard of it before. And I have, you know, three graduate degrees, essentially. Yeah. Um, however, like I said, my thesis is that I find it, you know, potentially helpful if it's used in the right way. Um, you know, similar to schema therapy, you know, like we did yeah. schema therapy and it, there's a lot of parallels between it there in schema therapy. I, I think you even have nine types in that one too, if I'm not mistaken, nine schemas yeah. or no, 18 schemas, there's 18 schemas. And 
there is it doesn't lend itself towards predictive power it's hard because it's it, it's uh similar in the way that it's uh, worded and and it's um and it doesn't claim to necessarily predict behavior you know it's a model for trying to understand personality and i find schema therapy to be quite useful for the most part there's some things that that i change um and i could see after looking through Enneagram, it being used in a similar way. Yeah, so I, it's a little interesting for me, though. The So there are some things in life where you find them useful because it's like a tool. For example, imagine a pencil that only draws in broken lines. Most people might not want that pencil, right? They're like, I don't know, this, this is not a good pencil. It draws in broken lines. But you, you, let's say you're an artist and you're like, actually, that's the, just the right tool I was looking for for this one painting I'm making. So you use it and you're like, oh, this is a good tool, right? So clearly we can't conclude from that. that like, this is the best pencil for everyone. But it turns out it is a useful tool in the right context for the right circumstance. Exactly. It might be a little similar to that. But what, what I, where I start getting a little nervous is when we say things like, it can be helpful, just not in a scientific way, because then I don't know what we're talking about. I'm like, well, helpful to whom? How often? How frequently? Well, it depends you know? on what we're mean, meaning science. So we can privilege in science yeah. the predictive power of a model, yeah. or we can pr- uh, privilege in science the outcome of you know better relationships, sure. better lives, yeah. satisfactory with the treatment. Um, and in that way, I'm guessing, and although I didn't see any research, you would find that there are a, a percentage of people who are um, able to utilize this model with a percentage of their clients or yeah. you know people in a way that they the people walk away going like that was a good use of my time, right? And then so, that to me is scientifically valid, right? So uh, now before I go into the theory, also I want to say. That I know enough to know that I'm, that I'm not an expert in Enneagram. I, I've spent a couple weeks reading the literature and taking a lot of notes. Um, I know enough to know that there are experts in this theory that know a lot more about it and know a lot more nuance to it. And sure. if you heard them talk about it, you would probably be inspired more by it. <laughs> For example, we have patron Dr. Joel, who actually does this sort of thing, and, and he uh, wrote to me and said, most of the assessments available online are crap. Even worse, they're misleading. You can't, quote-unquote, take the Enneagram, the Enneagram test in the same way that you take the Myers-Briggs test. One, because the assessments aren't accurate enough online. Two, because most people use the Enneagram like a party game. Uh, you know, like, yeah, yeah, right. yay, yay, I'm Pufflepuff, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> having your type identified is as useless as having someone give you a diagnosis like borderline. What matters is having a skilled psychotherapist like you work with that person, have them understand their internal experience, their emptiness, their longing, the intense fears of rejection and abandonment from the inside out. Also, uh, so that's the end of his email. So that made a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That's when when I heard him, I was like, oh, okay, okay, you know, I, I'm convinced that. Uh, but is there a different kind of test for it? So he uses. So there's a lot of tests out there. Yeah. So that's part of the problem is that anyone can just claim to have an enneagram test online, and a lot yeah. of people have. I took like five of them. Yeah, I did too. I took like I don't know ten of them, and. 
they had so who knows who how those people came up with their measures you know and uh and but it doesn't really matter because no one can really claim ownership over it because in my field for example the consensus can sort of uh, dominate right like like i can't come out and and say that I have a new Big Five test that I'm mm. going to start doing. Yeah, I'm just going. I have a new thing. It's called the Big Five, and I'm going to measure it this different way, and I'm going to post it online. Like I would be laughed uh, out of my field. You know, now I could do it, and I could probably get a lot of clicks and maybe even make some money, but I wouldn't be able to show my face at work or <laughs> around other colleagues or anything like that. You know, I mean, like to develop something like a new thing, you'd have to. Research it, publish yeah. it, take years, yeah. peer review it, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, uh, but with Enneagram, it doesn't really have that consensus dominance in, in, in a professional field. So, right. so anyone seemingly can just claim ownership over it. And thus, there's just a lot of odd stuff out there. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's another reason why my field doesn't really touch it because I'm just speculating yeah. is because, you know, of that issue. Um, also, uh, before I explain the theory, this is my understanding of the current mainstream theory of, of the Enneagram and not necessarily like, cause it's been around a long time. Right. And so there's a lot of variation in that way. All right. So in looking at the literature, it was apparent to me that there's been a lot written about it from various authors. Some are very mystical mm. authors and mystical figures, religious figures, if you will, occult figures, and others within the field of psychology actually have started to, to write about it, you know. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, so there's a lot of variation. Uh, the basis, of, from my understanding of the theory, is that we're all born with a temperament. Now, that's one way of wording it, temperament. Mm-hmm. Other people will word it like it's, you know, you're born with an essence. You'll hear them use that oh. word. Or you're born with a genuine self, or you're born with a real self. So it, it depends on, uh, you know, the sort of connotation of the author that they want to derive. You know, the mystic people, it's like an essence or mm. your soul or, you know, that kind of language. And then to a humanistic person, it's your genuine self. And then to a more modern person, it's your temperament. Sure. Like the pre-wiring for your for your personality in your brain. Yeah, like your, um, but, you know, it can be taken to an extreme, and I guess it's important to kind of go into this. I believe, and most mainstream people around me uh, adhere to the notion that we're all born with a temperament, and sure. but it's not, it, it's only somewhat determinant of your personality, that it interacts with your environment and mm-hmm. how things go and how you interpret your own personality and that develops your quote-unquote personality um so the uh uh, but some people on the enneagram uh theory uh you know adhere to the theory they hold that you're born with something with something kind of intact Mm. and that as you develop we experience environmental difficulties and these experience can be either consonant with your true essence or self or be dissonant with your true self. Mm. And if they're dissonant experiences, then our essence has to develop these rigid defenses or they don't use the word defense, but it's kind of what they're getting at 
or our idea of ourself becomes distorted or the expression of our self becomes distorted and we become quote unquote fixated with a defensive strategy to protect ourselves from the difficulties. Um, we develop these self-defeating ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving, you know, not, not an unusual idea. I think it's shared in a lot of different theories, but, um, but in some Enneagram literature, they tend to really focus on, because like in, in my field and, you know, psychodynamic field, they would say, there's no real true self. It's just what self is developed over time yeah. and what self do you want to have in order to have it be best for you. But you wouldn't necessarily try to return to an older self. Humanistic people, there's a tradition in, in the, of trying to, you know, of self-actualizing or trying to re- kind of return to another self. But they would also say like, well, it's all kind of evolving. In the Enneagram world, and certain authors, they seem to be saying, you need to try to return to the source, which is a different way of looking at it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So this is similar to a lot of other theories that we've talked about, schema therapy, Boenian theory, um, ego psychology, and that we're talking about defensive, defenses, object relations, sort of, again, the humanistic therapy, self-actualization, Gestalt, Rogers, etc. Um, so if taken in a certain way, which I'm guessing Dr. Joel actually does use it in this way, uh, I imagine that it's pretty much in line with a lot of humanistic and somewhat ego psychology traditions. So to heal in therapy or by using this model, you're trying to be more like you. You're mm-hmm. trying to like express the you from within rather than doing a false self on the outside to try to cope with an environment that forced you to change your personality. Interesting. Um, this is a very humanistic idea, by the way. Um, you know, you've heard the term self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that was that whole movement was like huh. you need to actualize the self instead of acting like a way that you think you're supposed to be acting in order to fit in. I just I just always thought it well and maybe it is in general. I thought it was like well look, we don't know what you're supposed to become or whatever. Just clearly, if you're on the lower rungs of the Maslow pyramid, you're you're not doing everything you could be doing as a human. If you're actually self actualizing. You will, you know, you will be so much more fulfilled in deeper ways, blah, blah. But we're not, we don't know what your self-actualization would look like. Whereas this sounds, it's like, well, like, you have a predetermined bent or angle to your self-actualization, and you need to do that, otherwise you'll be fighting the elements the whole time. Yeah, and so, I mean, in essence, I think, and again, certain Engram, Enneagram, I keep wanting to call it Engram, because that's how it looks to me, but Enneagram, certain Enneagram practitioners or experts will have a different nuance on this or they'll say well it's kind of complicated so i just want to acknowledge that again there's from what i can tell there's there's a lot of different takes on it but uh the healing process is trying to return or express your true self and as you do that you move from basically being unaware and kind of reactive and having that shell of a personality that isn't really you to being more aware of who you really are and non-reactive to the outside and more uh, what we would call in my field differentiated, the ability to be like, okay, you're asking me to do this and that doesn't really fit with me and so I'm going to say no to that. 
Um, and also the ability to be flexible in a situation so that you can sort of get the most out of life. Like some situations might call for you to be talkative and some situations might call for you to not talk at all. Right. And both states don't cause you to freak out because you're flexible and you're, you're yeah. able to retain yourself even in certain contexts that require you to do different things anyway. Uh, okay. So let's get into the nine personality types and let's figure out who you and I are, Berto. Yeah. Um, so Enneagram is a composite of two Greek words, Ennea, which is the word for number nine. Number nine. Ennea. Number nine. Ennea. And grammas, which is the word for figure. So it's a nine figure. And if you've never seen it, you know, Google it. It looks like a pentagram kind of, like a broken pentagram. And when I look at it, it feels new age numerology, astrology-ish to me. Uh, Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That, the, I didn't... Uh... I knew gram as a root. I didn't know what Enya was as a root. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, but the pentagram thing just looks a little... And sure. the way that sometimes it's used, it's like, well, if you have these combinations that are these touching things, then therefore, blah, blah, uh. blah. And it... Uh, <laughs> anyway. So now, what people will say is they'll say, you can be more than one type. You don't have to be just... You know, out of the nine Enneagram types, you don't have right. to just be one type. And by the way, I had... In most of the tests I took, without spoiling yet what I got, most of them, actually several of them said, well, we can't determine what your type is, but here's your the top ones. Oh, yeah. And I had a few ties in several of them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they'll say you have one with a wing of another. They'll uh -huh. say you're like a, you're a nine with a three wing or something. Uh, so, uh, yeah. But what they will say in the literature that I've read is we tend to use one number um, in our lives. We tend to be primarily one number. Um, also, as you've probably noticed, they tend to use the number instead of the label. You know, like type yeah, one, type one is that. called the perfectionist, uh, but people will usually try to refer to the, the number because they don't want people to associate any kind of negative connotation with the type. Right. And some of the type uh, titles can feel a little bad. Yeah. Um, so that makes sense. So let's just reveal our types right up front and then we'll go through the different definitions. How did you pan out? All right. Well, the one most common on all of them that was, that was there in all of them was the challenger or the leader, which is number, uh, seven type seven. Okay. Uh, that one came out as tied or in the top or in the top ones on all the tests. Oh. Uh, that said, I had some very close calls. Like, the first test I took, Challenger was 18. Like, I got an uh, um, an 18 out of it. But, like, my second one was 17. Okay. And it was the Achiever. And then in another one, it was actually tied, 27 on both. And it was the Challenger and the Reformer. So it was really weird. Um. So do you think that's accurate? Well, uh, when I was reading, like, the there was one. My favorite uh, outcome was one called the uh, Fast Enneagram Test. And the, what I mean by that is that it actually described – it had a whole bunch of description. Because a lot of the other ones just tell you, like, here's what you are or here's what you – the combination. But this one was, like, challengers are direct, self – oh, by the way, sorry, I'm wrong. It's type 8, not type 7. Okay. Type 8. Okay. 
but it, it like tells you uh, how to get along with me, what I like about being an eight, how, what's hard about being an eight. And so that one actually, when I was reading through, I'm like, yeah, actually a lot of these things, you know, but I didn't read all of them. So for all I know, many of the other ones might apply as well. Right. The Barnum effect. Yeah. Uh, did the other types that you were also labeled as make sense to you? Yeah, none of the, uh, let's see, the only surprise, slight surprise was uh, the reform, no, not the reformer, the helper. What number? The helper is... Number two or three? Two. So uh, that that one didn't make sense to you? I was just a little surprised by it, yeah. Uh, yeah. Where What is the description? I'm trying to remember. That's like a pleaser. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Well, and, I, and I could see why, because we've talked about that before, you know, like me... I have that, but I was just surprised because um, it doesn't really fit your overall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that was the only one. But a lot of the other ones made sense, like that. The helper, you know, I like to help. The achiever, I like to achieve. Yeah. The enthusiast, I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> Individualist, yeah. Individualist came out high on one of them too. Well, we'll we'll go through the each type yeah. and uh, in more detail. But I was just curious as to your take on the the results i i came out with uh let's see what did my test give out my my test said i was type eight and i took many of the tests too and again the the experts out there would be like you can't take the goddamn online test and expect anything good to happen but you know uh it is what it is um so i got a lot of mixed results actually when i took the tests like some tests would say I was definitely this and other oh, tests other tests found I wasn't it at all. So that was one thing. Um, now, I tended to score high on type seven, which is like which we'll get into in a second. And I tended also to type eight and also type three and a little bit of type two and a little bit of type one. Um, and one test actually identified me as a 721, which is apparently the teacher. Um, and, you know, since I'm a teacher, I sense. guess that makes sense. Oh, by, by the way, really quick, I think you're right. The labels change a lot from test to test, it seems like. Mm-hmm. So, because I just realized uh, the reason I was confused is on one of them, the Risso Hudson test, the label that came out for me was Challenger, which was all the type 8 on all the other ones. But on this one, it's type 7. Yeah, uh, that'll be that's probably a product of a bad test or a a, a test that's really gone off the rails Weird. on some level. Um, now, but when I think about myself, which I would like to think that I'm at least somewhat aware of my personality, having been in therapy all these years and thought about this sort of thing all right. these years, I feel like I am uh, all of eight of nine of these types. I see myself. <laughs> you have parts of all of it. Yeah, I mean, if I if I had to pick the top three, I guess it would be the three, seven, and eight. The three is the achiever. The seven is the uh, so three is the achiever narcissistic. That's uh-huh. you know that's the light side, dark side. Seven is the adventurer, optimistic, impatient, and insensitive. So you know, like to do things a lot, right? Like, like start a podcast. Uh, number eight is the courageous leader, so or bossy. So um, you know, so that kind of makes sense to me. I, I I'm definitely an achiever, adventurer, leader. That's number eight. Uh, eight, but I'm also you know narcissistic, impatient, insensitive, and bossy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I have a ton of one, two, four, and five. One is perfectionistic. I'm absolutely perfectionistic. Uh, two 
is generous and people pleasing. I'm, I'm, I would like to think I'm fairly generous and uh-huh. people pleasing. Uh, like I don't like conflict. It's not a, th- right. it, you know, in a, in a room, you know, like when I'm at family gatherings and someone starts talking about politics, I don't get involved. Right. I have no, I have no motivation to voice my opinion or I don't get riled. I'm just like, okay, people have opinions. Yeah. Um, and even and uh, and at, and I'll even like try to smooth things over and change the subject, you know. Uh, number four is creative, sensitive, and or quote unquote borderline personality. Oh, really? Yeah. Which well, they didn't say borderline, but I was interpreting that was kind of what they were getting at. But so number four is you know you're you're very creative, but you're also you know kind of sensitive. This is what Colin, I think, was saying what he was. These are, man, there's so much variability in descriptions across the well, board. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm trying to follow along with you, but the ones I'm like, this says type four, the individualist. Individualists yeah. have sensitive feelings and are warm and perceptive. But that's the same. That's the same what I'm talking oh, about. Okay, okay. And we'll get to like part of the problem with the way these tests are given and described is... They will. They seem to lump a lot of things together that don't yeah. really, are at least <laughs> traditionally considered to fit together. Some types seem to fit together pretty well, and some types it's just like why are it's, it seems like we're describing three different personality types <laughs> in one. And I think four is kind of like that because it's not like borderline people are, and sensitive people are inherently creative. Um, they can be very empathic because they have to be, but. Um, but anyway, so I, but I've definitely a ton of four. I definitely have a ton of five as well. That's the cerebral, detached, arrogant type. <laughs> um, you know, I'm definitely cerebral and can be detached and sure. arrogant. So you know, I, that's so I'm I'm I, I if you would have told me, you know, if some expert on high said of any of those what seven types, yeah. I would be like, oh my god, you nailed me. So that that sort of raises a red flag right there. Yeah. If I can be like seven, at least three types are very similar to me, but seven are pretty close, and it's like seven out of nine, uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Wouldn't the more useful approach be, and I think maybe this you're getting to this, but like just kind of like your overall... You have bits of all of it, but, you know, a little bit more of this one, a little bit more of that one. And, yeah, and I think, again, what Dr. Joel would say is... Okay, fine. You're you're seven. Oh, let's move forward. You know that's the assessment, and we don't have to lock you into one or two uh, personality types. Let's pull. F- you know the the same uh, foibles and the same historical issues led to you having this personality type. Sure. Uh, now let's let's figure out a way that you can optimize that for yourself and and actualize your your best personality and and not fall in and what Jung would say is you know not fall for the shadow side of these personality types by the way one thing that i find sort of self-referential in these kinds of things is i ask you uh do you prefer lemons or oranges and you go lemons and then i say ah Okay, after a whole bunch of questions, I determine you like lemons. Right. <laughs> which I was going to get into as well <laughs> later in terms of which we will. Yeah. Uh, so, and I'm also sort of a six, which is the anxious, watchful, but trustworthy type, which seems like oh. a weird combo of being anxious yeah. and trustworthy. But but six is a, which I thought you were going to come up on because it's someone who's sort of hypochondriac um, and also kind of scared of 
you know, Six global didn't warming come up at all. Um, the one that was definitely not, for the most part, was a nine. Was the agreeable peacemaker? Yeah, I had no. I like nine was a no show on all of them. Right, but that was the only well, one. Except one, actually, that was the only one that just didn't make any sense to me. Okay, so let's talk about different types. Type one is. Th- it's called the perfectionist. It's also called the reformer. It's also called the good person. <laughs> but it's type one. Is it bad that that was my lowest score in a couple of them? <laughs> uh, so this is the rational, idealistic type. This uh, ones, ones, They place a lot of emphasis on following the rules and doing things correctly. So... So this is interesting because for you, you're, you didn't come up high on this, but you definitely have a per- perfectionistic streak. I did come up. Uh, so in the composite Enneagram test, type 1 and type 8 were tied at, at the highest. Oh, okay. But that's the only one that it came out high. So the characteristics, and this is a compilation that I have compiled from various res- various sources in the literature. So the characteristics of type 1 are you're perfectionistic, right. you're rational, you're idealistic, you're principled, you're self-controlled, yep. you're conscientious, you're hardworking, you're responsible, you're ethical, you emphasize being correct and following the rules, you're well-organized, you know, you're anal. <laughs> so I'm half of all those. Yeah. You want to do things right, you strive to make things better, and your attention to detail and caref- careful adherence to protocols and procedures can be great assets to any team. Uh, so... You know, that's me. I, I'm I'm yeah. extremely idealistic. I don't know about self controlled so much, but probably. I mean, in in some ways, I would. I'm very conscientious. Whenever I take those kinds of tests, I'm all yeah. I always well self report tests. You know, yeah. if you take that, you know, with a grain of salt, it always. I on the Big Five, it, I always tend to be pretty high in the conscientious scale. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I love talking about ethics and about right. rules in my field. I, you know, I love that kind of thing. And I also will follow rules now. But on the other hand, I like breaking rules. So there's this. So th- how does this fit into this type? Because on one hand, at, at work at my university, I love following the rules in that I will overtly say to people, that person outranks us so we can ask them to change their mind, but they outrank us. Yeah. So, you know, that's the way this works. And other people don't like that kind of language. And I actually like that. I actually like it when someone outranks me or I outrank someone else. And there's a clear understanding because when, when you get to say things, you also bear the responsibility of the consequences. Sure. And in order for an organization to work right, someone has to step forward and make the choice. Right. You can't have everything be a democracy at some point someone has to make the call and someone has to follow through on that call and and so i i get that hierarchy and i like that i like the rules i like you know i'm i'm probably on that end of the spectrum but on the other hand when they send out a mandatory training i almost never do it <laughs> i'm just like you know uh, it's probably not actually mandatory, you know, and, you know, I'll wait for this to escalate to we're going to withhold your paycheck, you know, that kind of level. I, I love cutting corners. I love like, eh, I'm not going to do that form. Eh, you know, yeah. I-, I love breaking those kinds of rules. So, so to me, that doesn't fit in to a perfectionistic sure. pers- personality type. One can be perfectionistic, uh, conscientious, hardworking, idealistic, rational, 
ethical, responsible, and still also at times responsibly break rules. It's almost as if we are complex. (laughs) (laughs) When unhealthy ones will have an attitude of like, it's not okay to make mistakes. Uh. So as we go through this, I'm I'm going to be sprinkling in uh, literature that actually goes into the spirituality side of this. So the nine deadly sins, is there nine deadly sins? There's the seven, what the seven, because uh, the movie sin? Seven is, is seven, uh, deadly. seven deadly anyway, sins. There, there's nine, the, nine the, the, the nine is the other thing, the... Uh, I forget what they're called. Capital, There's nine things. Capital sins. Something, I forget. Uh, so there are. there's a sin uh, associated with each type, according to some okay. authors. So the sin associated with ones is anger. Oh. Which I don't even know what that means exactly. But So when, they're, when, people, when ones are unhealthy, I guess they're angry. They're, <clears throat> they're upset about making mistakes. They believe they must be good, right, and perfect to be loved, secure, and worthy. They can be critical. They can manage their feelings with perfection. They can be irritated by rule breakers. They can be resentful, judgmental. They can deny their anger. They can be obsessive and compulsive. And on occasion, their high standards and need for constant improvement may be experienced by others as being critical and controlling. So So it's odd because the dark side, you get to it through anger. But those guys break the rules all the time. Yeah. (laughs) So, makes sense, right? If you're really conscientious and principled and idealistic, you could imagine that person being critical and rigid and upset at other people, resentful of other people, that kind of thing. And, you know, it makes sense. But, again, just sprinkling a little critique here, a lot of people are critical and judgmental. Yeah. So, it's not like one's are the only ones who are critical and judgmental. Right. You know what I mean? Are they, is the flavor of their criticism a particular way? Maybe. But that's where we get into that Barnum effect, which we'll get into later, of just like, like, if you tell, you know, you give a test to anyone, you're just like, you have a problem with inner, you have a problem with hidden judgmentalism. And, and <laughs> you, you have secret criticisms of other people. Everyone. <laughs> that, are, that are a little harsh. You're, they'd be like, oh my God, you nailed me. And it's like, you know, every, everyone's like that. You have inner monologues in your head sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so I was trying to think if I knew anyone like this. And, you know, I, I guess, again, I'm kind of like this. Um, I guess my wife is kind of like this, but my wife isn't critical or judgmental or resentful. <laughs> uh, maybe she's in the good zone of, of one or something. Huh. Um, but, you know, but I wouldn't call her particularly, you know, high on the, you know, annoying rational side or idealistic side or principled side, but I would, she's, she's very hardworking and conscientious. So, you know, it's that thing where it's like, okay, sort of. Right. right. And all right. Number type two, This is the caring type. It's called the helper or the giver. Twos want to be liked and find ways that they can be helpful to others so that they can belong. So characteristics of them are they're caring, they're generous, they're helpful, they're supportive, they're relationship-oriented, they help, they give, they're in tune with other people's feelings, they strive to be loved, they're thoughtful, uh, as I said, generous and warm-hearted, they strive for connection and being helpful. Um, so yeah, that, that one came up high for me in one of the tests. Yeah, and as I said, uh, I thought that was in my second tier, so that's in my top seven. Because <laughs> uh, I, you know, I definitely consider myself to be helpful and supportive and relationship oriented. Like, 
when my wife uh, is having an issue, she doesn't ask for help a lot, but like I, I will, I will be highly compelled to help her. Even if she's not asking for help, you know, like she'll say like, this this isn't real, but she'll like complain she has dry skin and I'll just be like, well, let's buy you a humidifier. Let's solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, obviously with my clients and with my students and with my trainees, you know, I'm, I'm, it's a big part of my life that I get a lot of satisfaction from is trying to be helpful and, and being generous with my time and that kind of thing. Um, When unhealthy... These people will say, it's not okay to have your own needs. Yeah, what's the sin? Pride. Pride. What? I know. It doesn't, <laughs> I don't get it. Um, but when unhealthy, they will overemphasize the needs of others. They believe they must give fully to others to be loved, secure, and, and they can become possessive. They manipulate others by creating dependent people. They're overly people-pleasing, mm. overly intrusive. They avoid their own neediness and their own emotions. They can be demanding, manipulative, histrionic. Uh, They strive to be needed. Um, Sort of correcting my notes here. They can feel underappreciated and become exhausted and resentful. And so when I think about myself, it's like, yeah, I could kind of see that a little bit, you know, just extending oneself too far and being like, how come no one is taking care of me? Um, and, I've certainly felt that way before. And also the idea of like not uh, expressing my own neediness, you know, not same, not yeah. really asking or even giving the impression that I need anybody. So, you know, that yeah. one. So, so far I'm type one and, and type two. Uh, Maybe that's the pride. It's like, I'm too proud to ask for help. Uh, that, but also the, I think what the practitioners of Enneagram would say is that your, I think what they would say is, and I could be bastardizing this, is that if two, if you're, a, if you're, if you're primarily a two, you were born to be a helper. You, you get a tremendous amount of meaning from being helpful and through your difficulties in life, you develop this notion that, uh, you know, through your family system growing up, that when you're not helpful, you're worthless. Hmm. That and let you you have to help. You know that you, because your right. family recognize. Oh, this is a very helpful person. We're going to use that to our advantage, and we're going to really force that person to accentuate that personality type. And we're also not going to take care of them in the process. And so you develop this notion of <clears throat> I need to be. I need, I'm fixated on helping while not being balanced and taking care of myself at the same time. And so I think what practitioners would say is like, we need to emphasize the helping, but we need to help you also not be fixated on only helping right. and, uh, and invading other people and demanding that you be heard instead of allowing other people to know, you know, actually communicating your vulnerability in a way right. that other people will actually have empathy for. I think, I think that's along the lines of what sense. they say. And it's similar to schema therapy, by the way. Type three, the achiever. This is what you and I scored high on. Uh, this is the motivator, the performer, and the successful person. You, you rated high in this one, right? Uh, I did. On the first test, it was my second highest. And Wait, type three, right? Uh, yeah. And then it was also high on one of the other tests. So it wasn't consistently high, 
But it was high on two of the tests. Uh, so this is the success-oriented, sex, success-oriented and pragmatic type. So those don't seem to go really hand-in-hand, but success and pragmatic. Threes want to be successful and admired by other people and are very conscious of their public image. So the good characteristics of this type is success-oriented, pragmatic, which I'm trying to understand. Can you understand why pragmatic would be lumped in with achievement-oriented? Huh. No. Yeah. Uh, Driven, industrious, fast-paced, goal-focused, efficiency-oriented, works hard, achieves a lot, thinks well of their abilities, and strives to be valuable. So definitely me. Um, I've... I was, I've always been that way, <laughs> you know, I was captain of a wrestling team, captain sure. of a football team, I was in band, I was honor student, I was in vocal jazz, yeah. I was in talent shows, I was in Clearly. plays. An overachiever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, now I'm in a band, I have a podcast, yeah. I'm a university professor, I, you know, I, I just... I like doing things and succeeding at them, I guess. <laughs> um, and, you know, if I really just kind of broke it down, it's like part of the pleasure of doing it. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I like doing this podcast. One is is talking with you. Yeah. Just having formal conversations and about Star Wars or any <laughs> Enneagram or something like that. Uh, and so, obviously, just that's a well-known human thing to like is c- conversation. Yeah. I like to learn things. I like to interact with the world. I like to try to help the world. That's probably the main sort of... Because you're a helper. Uh, yeah. Tr- <laughs> I want to I make the world a better place in my little way. Uh, but I also like to succeed at the podcast. There's a, there's a bit right. of pleasure of just like seeing the numbers of like, oh, they're growing. Right, right. And... Uh, so for sure, you know, that that's a thing. Um, or with my band, I like practicing. I like interacting with the bandmates. I like to play music. There's something from the soul, you know, what that's like. It just the music yeah. is just pouring out of you. It just feels good to sing and play music. And But another part of it is like, hey, we nailed that. Yeah. Like we practiced, we worked hard, and we nailed that show. That, yeah. uh, that went well. People were impressed. You know, there's, you know, and other people... They're not so into that. You know, they sure. they might, of course, like to achieve things and be successful, but they're not like driven. Driven to do it. To yeah, do what it takes to do to it. To be like, I'm going to yeah. put in the time and the effort to actually do it, right? Yeah, the couple things about this one that I think may have made it only, because it, it was high in, in one specialty test, but uh, I think a lot of the questions that were about how others perceive me or things like that, like I I tend to not be too focused on that and and therefore I probably answered in a way that doesn't match too well with this one um, and then also I probably answered a few of like the goal oriented ones as in only somewhat instead of like very you know so so are you saying when you hear the description it sounds more like you than the tests when I heard you going through all the details about it I thought oh that's actually I'm like 80% of the way there but some of the words you used I'm not quite as much but definitely more than what the tests represented how so? In that, I think, well, clearly, because in four and three of the tests, that one actually came well, out low I, for me. Yeah, but how in your life are you an achiever? Oh, I, I'm saying, like, you, not to the level that you're talking about, like, 
when I compare myself to uh, Ty Verzoni in high school, one of my best friends in high school, uh, he was in all the clubs. He was in all the things. He was trying to get all the, the scholarships, all the things, like achieve, 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 achieve. Uh, I wasn't. But I did participate in math contests. I tried to do well in swimming. I tried to do well in cross country. I tried to get a scholarship. I tried to, you know, and I, I wanted to get, you know, into a good computer program and like all these things. So, you know, I, I was moderately into achievement. Uh, but I, I, I'm not like, uh, I don't think that is my biggest drive in life. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. When unhealthy, threes will say it's not okay to have your own feelings and identity and their sin is deceit which doesn't make a lot of sense to me deceit yeah I don't know Um, image conscious which can be a bad thing uh, believes they must accomplish and succeed to be loved secure and worthy they manage their feelings with oppression and staying active they manipulate others by charming them they're inattentive to their feelings and other people's feelings they can be impatient, narcissistic, and grandiose. So narcissistic, you know, it sounds like. And this definitely also sounds, you know, I, I scored high on the tests on some of them, and uh, but not all of them. And, you know, I would say this is in my top seven as well. Yeah. Um, and because I scored high in them, the tests would spit out certain more details. And they would say, how to get along with me? Leave me alone when I'm trying to do my work. <laughs> That's probably true. Uh, give me honest, but not unduly critical or not. Give give me honest, but not unduly critical or judgmental feedback. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, I think most people are like that. I yeah. think most people want honest, but not. Not over- unduly critical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, help me keep my environment harmonious and peaceful. Uh, sort of. Don't burden me with negative emotions. That's not me. Like, I'm not burdened. You're a therapist. <laughs> yeah, I'm not burdened by negative emotions. Tell me you like to be around me. Yeah, I think that's probably most people. Most people yeah. like to be told they're... You don't want to hear, like, I don't like being around you. <laughs> yeah. Tell me when you're proud of me and, and or my accomplishments. Um, yeah, I guess so. But honestly, like, I mean... I, Again, anyone likes to be told sure. that I'm, you know, their parents will say, I'm proud of you. You know, everyone likes to be told that. But that's never been the thing that's driven me. Hmm. Um, I I, lear- I realized a long time ago, maybe even when I was a teenager, that I like to do the things as I like to do them. Yeah. And everyone's just kind of into their own thing. They're not really paying attention. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it, if you like it, go for it. Um, if... Uh, if you're looking for accolades, like, you know, that's a, <laughs> yeah. So that's not really me. Uh, what I like about being a three, being optimistic, friendly, and upbeat. That's, that's me providing well for my family. That's me being able to recover quickly from setbacks and charge ahead to the next challenge. Yeah. Are you like that? Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of my strongest capabilities in my life has been the ability to just like deal with life's setbacks and just move forward. Uh, and the, let's see, being able to, re- oh, staying informed and knowing what's going on, eh, kind of. Being competent and able to get things to work efficiently. It's you definitely, definitely do that. I'm definitely doing that. Being able to motivate people, uh, I guess. I mean, I guess it depends on the context. Like if with my mm-hmm. supervisees, I'm pretty good at motivating them, but... 
I don't know how good I am at motivating my wife to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> What's hard about being a three, having to put up with inefficiency and incompetence, that's that's me all the way. <laughs> like, ha- I mean, you've heard me on the Rail pod- at the wind. <laughs> yeah, just like the inefficiency. When I was first learning the English language at the age of five, and I learned that TH was the th sound, uh-huh. like in like as in tooth. Uh-huh. And I saw the Foothills Restaurant in downtown Issaquah, and I said, oh, Foothills Restaurant. Foothills. And they're like, no, 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 it's Foothills. And I'm like, but there's a TH. And they said, no. <laughs> there's a, no, my parent, no, no, it's, it's actually Foothills. And I'm like, but we learned that TH is the sound of th. Yeah. And my parents were like, well, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just a T and an H. <laughs> and I was like... And I remember just kind of being, I, in that moment, I remember at the age of yeah. five or six thinking, what idiot <laughs> invented a system that didn't make any yeah. sense? Yeah. Like, d- why? You know? I, I, feel, I feel you on that. I have similar feelings throughout my life of getting really annoyed about some something that everyone puts up with on a regular basis. And I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And as chair, when I became program director, this became the bane of my existence. <laughs> you know, when you become a program director at a university, you know, like a dean figure and uh-huh. a high administrative figure, you are interfacing with all the departments at a university. Right. You're, you're highly dependent on the finance department, admissions, the president, the marketing people, the website people, the IT people, all of your, uh, you know, your students, all of your faculty, all of your adjunct faculty, yeah. all the HR people, you know, and the, um, the, you know, sheer number of inefficiencies and incompetencies that I would bump up against would just plague me. <laughs> you know, it would, it just would ruin my day. And oh, I, yeah. I would just look at it and be like, how do you live with yourself being so oh. incompetent, you know? Oh. And now that I'm not program director anymore, I don't interface with any of that. And I don't, yeah. and in, when I do, I just go, well, you're not chair. What are you going to do? And I just put up with it as an employee, you know what sure. I mean? So, you know, but so I don't think that's really a three so much thing. It's more of like a one thing, right? That's more of a perfectionistic thing. Anyway, yeah, it might be, um, threes fear that they won't be successful, blah, blah. Anyway, Uh, The healing message for a three is you are loved for who you are. Oh, not for what you achieve. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I could see the logic. Like, I mean, someone's just making this stuff up, you know? So, yeah, if if you're so driven that all you care about is achievement, but, but that might not be filling some holes in your heart, then maybe it can help you to hear, hey, man, we love you as you are. I think that does resonate for me anyway, of just like, and I, again, it resonates with everyone. Everyone wants to be loved for who they are. But I think a central healing message for this schema or this Enneagram type is to f- try to really focus on that and try to absorb it or seek it yeah. or something. Type four, this is called the creative, the individualistic, the romantic, or the sensitive person. I'm also kind of calling this the borderline person because I think that's kind of what they're getting at. I'm not quite sure. This is the sensitive type and the withdrawn type, which again doesn't fit borderline, but right. it's kind of weird. It's, this is one of those words, I huh? So you're sensitive and you're withdrawn. So fours want to be unique 
and to experience deep emotions. So fours want to be unique. So this could actually be another form of narcissism, actually, if you know, I'm trying to fit this into yeah. my various different constructs of personality. And I think this could be like the, the quiet narcissist, you know, the, the covert narcissist where, um, so let's look into this. So the characteristics are very sensitive to other people and, you know, yourself. You're, so Colin said he was like this, and I actually found this to be in my top seven too. You're expressive, you're idealistic, you feel deep feelings, you're empathetic, you like to be authentic to self, you seek a rescuer to understand them and support them, seeking a rescuer uh, to understand you and uh, support you, uh, you want to be seen, you're very compassionate, you're very introspective, and you're very reserved. So this seems to me to be two different constructs that don't really fit to me. One is that you're sensitive, expressive, and empathetic, you f- you feel deep feelings, you know, you're just a very sensitive person. Uh, you know, some people can go for months without having like a real kind of deep conversation with someone. Sure. And other people, it's like they need that, you know, do you really love me kind of conversation or what you did to me the other day really hurt my feelings. And I need you to understand that. And other people can go their whole life. They never have to have those kind of conversations. Right. Right, right. And so the creative or the romantic or the sensitive or the individual, I don't even know why they would call it the individualist. Like that doesn't even make it. It's most commonly called the individualist. Yeah, that's what it was called when it came up high for me on and one of the times. I was like, how does that, how does that label uh, apply to being sensitive and I guess withdrawn? So, so that's the other part of it. It's like, okay, so withdrawn. So, so I get the sensitive part, you know, that, mm-hmm. that holds together. But then there's this other part of the four, which is withdrawn, reserved, introspective and uh now colin says it fits him to a t so maybe this is something that is correlated Uh, for me it only came up uh as a on third position in one test it came out low on everything else but if you ask me like some of the words that go along with it like do i tend to be individualistic I, i do but a lot of the other stuff doesn't quite i don't feel yeah now, I will say that uh, if you just looked at my life, you could actually see a fair amount of reservedness, reservedness and introspectiveness. Well, and, certainly. I mean, you do diary constantly. Yeah. You spend time by yourself thinking and planning and all yeah. these kind of things. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it's on to something, but I've just never associated those two things together. And again, I think... The Enneagram proponents would say, well, that's the genius of Enneagram is that it captures something that, you know, you don't necessarily intuit in personality. When healthy, fours will say it's not okay to be too happy. You can't be too happy. Their sin is envy. They can be temperamental. They believe they must obtain the longed for ideal relationship or situation to be loved, secure and worthy. So this is definitely a borderline personality spectrum trait of like longing for an ideal relationship, Hmm. longing for that perfect connection, that perfect security, the perfect empathy, the perfect, you know, kind of real strong relationship. And, and, um, when they fall in love with another person, it's even kind of like that. They really fall in love. It's weird because out of the three things you mentioned, uh, envy and the, the the need for the relation the relationship but what was the first one you mentioned 
Uh, in the bad? In the bad. Uh, temperamental? Temperamental, right? Um, but what's interesting, like, envy slightly resonates for me as a thing, but I've always felt that it was envy of achievement. So it's almost like a, a bad on the achievement side, the achiever thing. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, the other ones don't don't really sound. Yeah. So fours are obsessed with closeness with others. They manipulate others by making others walk on eggshells. Yikes. Uh, they fear abandonment. They're self conscious. They're moody, dramatic, self absorbed, withdrawn, and depressed when they're when they're unhealthy. Yeah. So again, it's like it seems like a few different personality types mashed together to me but as colin said it fit him to a t so you know maybe it's you know another thing to think about is that these types the wording of it could be geared towards people being able to admit it no that's probably not true but anyway so this person again but i found this to be like in my top seven out of nine (laughs) i'm like uh yeah i'm sensitive i'm empathic Empathetic. I, I, I'm idealistic. I feel deeply. I'm compassionate. I'm fairly introspective and, and reserved. Um, I guess I can be moody. I am probably a little overly self-absorbed. Um, yeah, those are all somewhat applicable to me as well. Uh, I can be withdrawn at times, I guess, when I'm particularly unhealthy. I guess that's the thing. It's like when you look at times when you're having a pretty bad week or month or something, yeah. Uh, what did yeah. you act like? And I, I guess... But you know. as you're describing all those, like I'm like, yeah, that actually is quite a bit for me. And yet, in most of the tests, it didn't come up high at all. Like, right. not even top three. Right. So that's why I had to go back through all of them and go, okay, forget the tests. What do I think I am? Yeah. And that's when I came up with seven. <laughs> yeah. Type five, we're halfway through. The thinker or the investigator, observer, the wise person. This person is intense and cerebral. Uh, they seek understanding and knowledge and are more comfortable with data than other people. (laughs) So the characteristics are they're cerebral, they're intense, they're perceptive, they're innovative, they're self-sufficient seeking, they're non-demanding. By the way, all this is me. (laughs) I can be fairly non-demanding and I, I tend to be fairly cerebral. Yeah, as and, you're listing, again, as you're listing words, I'm like, yeah, words. Right. right. Words are words. <laughs> Analytic, thoughtful, unobtrusive, detached at times, can be extraordinarily accomplished. Uh, most intellectual of the nine types, highly objective, emphasizes being an expert. It's definitely me. Independent, observant, likes to think about things and strives to be competent. So totally me. In fact, I'm going to bump this one up to in my top four instead of my top. Yeah, you know, for me, it seems like this one came out middle of the road on all, on all the tests or on most of the tests. But on, on one of them, it didn't even show up at all, which is really weird. The classic Enneagram test. It, it, it's not even listed. But um, it was like middle of the road on all the other ones. Not, none of them did it bubble up to the top, but it was middle. Yeah, I mean... It's weird because a lot of these that you're like, yeah, I guess I could see myself. And I'm like, wow, I I feel like I'm big time this. And then I think about you and I'm like, yeah, you have some of this, but not a lot of it. Like, like you're, you know, you, you're cerebral and you're perceptive and innovative and self-sufficient seeking, but you're not like, um, you're not like trying to be an expert on anything. Right. Like you don't, you don't try to be an expert 
Right. You know, you're not like, I'm the expert on this. And yeah, yeah. I guess you are in some arenas, actually, if you think but about it. But not out of... You know, like I didn't specialize to go to a PhD program to become the one thing on this one thing or like I'm going to be the best bass player or I'm going to be the, you know, like. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I just like I, there are things I like. And out of those, I definitely try to do better. I think haphazardly you have become an expert on things. But sure. It's, <laughs> but it's not your. Like a, wow, whoops, I'm an expert. <laughs> well, uh, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, when unhealthy, it's not OK to be comfortable in the world. The sin is avarice or greed. They have a fear of being. Huh. They have a fear of being useless or incompetent. So I definitely have a fear of being incompetent. That's that's a pretty big okay. one. It's just like the 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 like I always think, and I've said this on the podcast probably a handful of times, but uh, just as a sharp example of this, as a professor, I was I was using the word. I think I was telling you I was using the word um, permutation. Uh, (laughs) permutation yeah yeah the word i was trying to say was permutation but i was saying permutation and i used it a few times in one lecture and then was like i i don't know if i have that word right googled it uh and actually back then google wasn't the way it is today but it took me a while to figure out actually i think it took me months online to figure (laughs) out what word i was actually trying to say because because they were saying permutation isn't a word and they wouldn't suggest another word so i was like am i i I could you're making up a word i could have swore this is a word Eventually, I figured it was permutation, and that was literally 20 years ago, and it's still stuck in my head. Because you were thinking per- permeate, permutation, right. permutation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, uh, the embarrassment and shame around, <laughs> you know, uh, being incompetent in that way, you know, especially in a role as a professor where you're supposed to be competent, yeah. you know. Um, so I can definitely relate to that. Uh, manage feelings via, uh, via intellectualization and projection. Mm, that's not really me. Manipulates others by detaching and, and being preoccupied, uh, maybe. Believes they must protect themselves from the world that demands too much and gives too little to be loved, secure, and worthy. Huh. Uh, withholding, isolated, overly private, secretive. That's not really me. Avoidant. Yeah. Useless specialization. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So... So the thing about this one is like I could I think this is a definitely a personality type. Sure. There doesn't seem to be three different things mashed together. You know, you can imagine someone who is, uh, you know, pretty isolated in the world and insecure and they were abused or something and they go, you know, classic. They go into I.T., yeah, and they become really good at computers because there's rules and it makes sense, and there's a path to becoming good at it, and they're very competent, and they, uh, you know, they're very intellectual, and they sit at home and they think a lot, and they, you know, read a lot of philo- yeah. philosophy websites. That's a and, type, and they're very cerebral, and they they don't really talk much, and but they're also secretive, avoidant, and they they have a useless specialization, <laughs> like. They're, I know these people. You're describing yeah. people I know. Yeah. They're like super specialized in, I don't know. They collect stamps, but only from the year 1973. Right. <laughs> uh, or what's something that's real that I can think of? That's well, no, like a lot of people, like they know how to repair, like, you know, I have a friend who repairs, but like they, they, they don't repair useful everyday things. They repair arcade machines. Okay. You know, like arcade machines. Like yeah. how often do you need that? But it's a very specific specialization. Yeah. 
They withdraw. They might even split off from reality entirely. So you could imagine like an incel person kind of being in this category, mm-hmm. right? You sort of become split off from the rest of the world. Uh, you live in worlds of your own creating, Dungeons and Dragons, sure. video games. You can be arrogant. Um, and, and one site said that in the movies, fives are the mad professors, which I don't know if make any sense to me. Um, the healing message for these people is your needs are not a problem, which makes a lot of your sense. Needs are not a problem. Right. So I actually know people like this. We both can probably identify. There's probably a lot of yeah. Seattle men who are actually like this. And I think that, yeah, it makes sense. It's like they were born very cerebral. Yeah. They were analytical. They like to think about things. They like to, uh, they, they don't like to be very demanding on other people. They, they want to live their own life. Um, but they also want to have attachments and all that kind of stuff. And when things go bad for them, when their life uh, gets in the way and they end up fixating, as the Enneagram people would say, on a particular, uh, I think, a particular way of coping with it, they can become overly isolated. Mm-hmm. They can become uh, overly specialized. They can become broken from and too separated from the rest of the world where they start having odd ideas. The Unabomber, <laughs> you know, these kinds of people. Yeah. Uh, when you take into it to an extreme, uh, one website identified a bunch of fives. They identified these people, Bill Gates, uh, which you could kind of see. Sure. Scrooge, which you could kind of see. Yeah. <laughs> Buddha. But I don't know well, if I we don't know about that. One. I don't know if we know. <laughs> yeah. T.S. Eliot, which I don't know. T.S. Eliot's, uh, I'll take him at their yeah. word. Uh, Sartre, Descartes, Timothy McVeigh, uh, who was the bomber yeah. in Oklahoma City? Oklahoma City bomber. Uh, Joe DiMaggio, Albert Einstein, H.R. Uh, Haldeman, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, yeah. <laughs> J- uh, Jackie O, and Vladimir Lenin. So these are people who, you know, like to think, <laughs> I guess, and write. Um, so, you know, you can kind of see that in, in Sartre, Descartes, uh, McVeigh, Kaczynski, these people who ice. So, when it goes well, you write philosophy. When it goes bad, you isolate and bomb a building, I guess, um, to take it to an extreme. All right. Six. So I thought, so again, going back to type five, I thought this was in my top four. I, I, but, or, and I, and hardly any tests, uh, the tests barely saw me as that. Really? Yeah. Yeah. On the average, it was like 30% out of a hundred. Number six. Type six is the loyalist, the trooper, the questioner, the skeptic. So these, the loyalist didn't make a lot of sense to me. The questioner makes more sense to me. These people are committed to, they're, they're committed. So they're very committed people. They're very yeah. loyal and they're very secure, security oriented. So again, these, these seem like two different things. Yeah, those are two separate things. So they're very committed and loyal and they're also uh, fairly anxious and yeah. watchful. Um, they're very trustworthy and loyal and committed, but they're also alert and uh, and worried. Yeah, those should get decoupled for sure. You know? Um, this one came out low across the board for me, which is interesting because you would have thought like, or oh, aren't I anxious and worried about stuff? But for some reason it didn't, didn't bubble up. Right. I was surprised. I thought you'd come high on this one. Yeah. 
So when unhealthy, they will say it's not okay to trust yourself. The sin is fear, which I guess makes some sense. Uh, they have a fear of being without support. They can become paranoid, anxious. Uh, let's see. Oh, sorry. Okay. It, it, it came up. So it, it came up not highest, but it came up top four in one of the tests, the composite Enneagram test, and maybe top five in, in, in the first one, the Enneagram type preferences test. Uh, it never showed up at all in the classic Enneagram test. And it, it scored a two in the Riso Hudson, and it didn't come up on the other. So, in like, in two of the tests, it came out middle of the road for me as well. But it, it, it is it is puzzling. Yeah. I mean, maybe Enneagram experts would say, okay, just being worried and having some mild hypochondria doesn't qualify you for an sure. overall personality type six yeah, presentation. Yeah. They can become accusatory and suspicious. And what they, is that supposed to mean? And they they can become attached to weird beliefs, so like the world is flat, right. or Trump is going to take away your guns, or something. Yeah. Um. So on that, when we talk, when we put it in that frame, I guess we might know people in that I category. I definitely know people in that category. Okay, maybe that's what they're getting at. Is like people who are so when they're in the good zone, uh-huh. they're very loyal. Yeah. Which I can see, they're very committed. Oh, I know, I know two people at least in my yeah. head right now. I know who you're t- thinking about. And actually, now I think of four people, two of whom you don't know. Yeah. So yes. So they're very trustworthy, I guess, yeah. but they're very loyal. They're very committed. Yeah. Um, but they're also very alert and watchful, and very questioning. And because of their own historical issues, they right. can become paranoid and suspicious and high neuroticism. Yeah. Uh, and attached to very strange beliefs. Right. So, hmm. Interesting. So definitely not you and me. No. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to demote that one to mostly not. I'm going to, I'm actually, I'm going to demote that one to completely not because um, now that I, I think we've figured out what that's trying to get at. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, it gets confusing because it's like, well, I'm trustworthy, I'm committed, I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm, ext- I'm extremely loyal. Yeah. But I think the point is like, well, does the whole thing fit you? Sure. It's like it's fine. You're loyal, you're committed. That's great. But what we're trying to get at is this particular kind of person, and maybe it's like because I'm trying to figure out why loyalty and commitment would be associated with this paranoid, weird belief system. What's their sin, by the way? Uh, fear. Oh, fear. So. I, I'm guessing, you know, if I was to think about it, I'd be like, well, for some, for some sixes, they, you know, they're, I guess they're born with an essence of being very watchful and security oriented. And, you know, maybe they take care of other people by making sure that the world is safe for everyone around them. Nothing wrong with that. But because of trauma, they end up uh, and and they're also very loyal to people committed because that's almost a security thing, right? Mm. It, it's like when you're in your tribe, right? To be loyal and committed is to, uh, in a way, privilege security because it's like we got to stick together. Yeah. And when I'm when I'm loyal and you're loyal back, then I know, I feel more secure. And when it gets uh, fixated, when these sixes get fixated, they end up getting fixated on um, things that aren't really important to or objective to worry about yeah. like certain kinds of animals and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and so the healing message for these people are 
you are safe. Oh, you are safe. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, Aaron, she wrote in, she said, um, it was fairly accurate, but I hated it when I took the test. Oh. It would be great if you could talk about whether the six option is really a personality type or just a trauma response. Oh. It just seems like the worst one of the bunch with no redemptive qualities that I could find. <laughs> would be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. Again, I'm, I'm guessing experts like Dr. Joel would be able to answer this better than I would, but but I think I did. I think I managed to do that. You yeah. know, you're sure. you love through security, yeah, and uh, you know, some I I love I, I I love it to I love security too. Yeah, I have security cameras on my <laughs> on my house. We all uh, love security to a secure. Uh, I have amount. I like my data to be backed up in a on a hard on a set of hard drives that are in a safe deposit box at the bank. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very interested in security and, you know, fire safety. Like, I, I run my family through drills in terms of, like, which, right. uh, where's the fire extinguisher? How do you use it? You know, because I see, just on the, along those lines, just the fire extinguisher. This is advice to everyone out there. Occasionally, you know, you're cooking on the stove or something happens, so something catches on fire. Yeah. And the first thing that I see people do, which is natural, is you just flip the fuck out. Yeah, right. And people, ah! You Fire! Know, just panic. And, again, which is normal. But then I don't see people going to step two, which is, <laughs> what's the solution? Right. Because there's a solution, you know? Yeah. Like, you cut your finger. You don't run around the house with blood spurting out. You go, you know, you, you put it underwater, you put a bandage, you, you might elevate it. You know, people know what to do, but for, there's something kind of visceral about fire. Right. And so I feel like I have to run it through people. Like, when there's a fire, get the fire extinguisher. Right. Put out the fire. Don't worry about the consequence. Because a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to spray that shit everywhere. Yeah, I'm making dinner. It's going to ruin dinner. It's going to ruin dinner. Yeah, it's like... uh we can recover, you know, like take the risk, yeah. you know? So, so you out there, you six, Aaron, uh, a wonderful thing about you, if this fits you, if I'm even describing you, I don't know, is that you're a wonderful person to be around in terms of security oriented. You, you love through security and you're also very loyal and committed and you're tribe oriented. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, again, the, the the name they have here is the loyalist. Maybe right. that's why they called it that because they don't want to call it the scared person. Sure, you know they're calling it your you the loyalist. you express your loyalty and commitment through security oriented activities and thoughts. I guess, um, and so I mean forty percent of this country might be a loyalist. <laughs> yeah, um, but to address your question, Aaron, yeah, uh, you might and a expert might even determine this is like, okay, you're scoring high on the type six, but that's only because of your fixation related to your trauma. Your real essence is another type mm. that, that the test won't necessarily reveal because you're in a hypervigilant state of PTSD that causes you to be very scared about things and hypervigilant and ever watchful. And, but that's not the real you. That's interesting. Like, for example, someone might be trying to achieve nonstop, and, and we're like, oh, they, they're an achiever. But it turns out the reason they're trying to achieve nonstop isn't this rewarding, self-fulfilling thing. 
it's some trauma that their dad always yelled at them if they didn't or something. Right. And I think that's where, you know, where Dr. Joel was saying, learning that you're a type doesn't do anything for you. It takes a practitioner to walk you through it, take hours and hours of exploring and looking at it and experimenting to figure out like, okay, well, just because you scored high on this, that doesn't necessarily mean that's your true personality, you know, your true self. Uh, Type seven, the enthusiast, the epicure, the adventurer, the dilettante, the happy person, and the generalist. The generalist makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. The rest of them do. <laughs> so I scored high on this one. I thought this was def- I, I, definitely in my top three or four. This person is extroverted and spontaneous. They want to have fun and adventure uh, and are easily bored. Uh, <laughs> I, I scored high on this one in a few. Uh, for example, the final test, the Risso Hudson, type seven was my highest score. In the... Uh, and the other ones, it wasn't the highest, but it was like top three in one of them. It was top three, actually top three in two of them. So it was it was in my top, I'd say top three. Yeah, you are all over this one. Yeah. You and I are both. In fact, you're probably more so <laughs> than I am on this one. Uh, busy, fun-loving, spontaneous, vers- I mean, this is definitely you more than me. You know, uh, versatile, optimistic, upbeat pleasure-seeking, adventurous, emphasizes fun things, enthusiastic, strives to be happy, creative, innovative, entertaining, interesting. You quickly synthesize ideas, reframe problems, and adapt to changing environments. Um, Now, again, uh, there's a bit of the Barnum effect, which we'll get into later, of just like, well, everyone is sort of busy and fun loving. Yeah. If you know, like everyone strives I don't like fun. <laughs> everyone strives to be happy. But I think we get the picture here. Yeah. And especially if it kind of really fits. It's like, yes, Birdo is definitely this. I'm in that direction for sure. Is uh, the sin by the way irresponsible or something? I don't know what the gluttony. Gluttony, yeah. Like that's where I was going with it. Yeah. Uh like uh, overindulgence, gluttony. Right. So that that one makes sense. Yeah. So you know, you're you're definitely this. I mean, you're you're more fun loving than I am. You're more spontaneous than I am. You're uh, you're more optimistic, I would say, um, than I am. You emphasize the you the fun things. You strive to be happier than I do. <laughs> more of a glutton than you are. <laughs> yeah. When unhealthy, it's not okay to depend on anyone or anything. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I have that too. Uh, the sin is gluttony. The fear is of being deprived. Yeah, I have that too. Distractible. Wait, what? Scattered. Yeah. Manipulates others by insisting that others meet their demands. No. Do I do that? Yes, I, I do. Yes, you do. How? Okay, okay. Not okay. to me. Maybe, maybe it's a. Uh, oh, I see. I see. You've witnessed this behavior. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I see. I see. So it's maybe by relationship I might do that. Or by uh, context. Okay. Pain, it, read it again. Manipulates others. By insisting that others meet their demands. Oh, Essentially yeah. by being demanding. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Pain avoidant. Uh, yeah. Uncommitted. Uh, yeah. Maybe sometimes. Self-serving. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid seeing their pain and emptiness. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but again, that's kind of most people. Yeah. Uh, believes you must keep life up and open to assure a good life and be loved, secure, and worthy. I guess so. 
That's definitely you, man. I mean, that's why you entered there or that's what your therapist saw when you first entered therapy is just like, slow down. You don't always need to be up and open. Like you can slow down and take, oh, take sure. care of yeah, yourself. Yeah. 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 They can become manic, uh, yeah. in the hype, you know, the sort of non pathology sense. Yeah. There's a sort of frenetic escapism. Yeah. How so? Uh, yeah. I mean, like when I, when I'm feeling down and out, uh, I make plans. I go to the movie in the middle of the day. I go have a little bit too much uh, at the happy hour. I like fly. I get on a plane and fly to Australia. I've never actually done that one, but I might. <laughs> Not wanting to be limited. Definitely. Oh, God. Yeah. Not wanting to be restricted or left out. Yep. You seek excitement. Ooh, left out is a big one. And of course, as we've talked about so many times, a lot of the things have evened out over my years, but not wanting to be left out was one of the biggest themes for me growing up. Mm. And I don't know if it was like the, just the simple, like, well, my mom left. I don't want to be left out of that. I feel like there was more to it. I remember so clearly I was little, probably four, maybe five. I'm upstairs taking a nap. It had to be really little because it was still when I was taking naps in the middle of the day. I know you do, but this is like the little kid version. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I start waking up. I'm in my grandparents' bed and I hear fun voices downstairs of my cousins with my grandma. Something's happening downstairs. I hear fun voices, maybe even laughter. And I instantly panic and get so upset and I run down the stairs. I'm like, what's happening? Like, what am I missing out on here? <laughs> and I have this memory. Like, it's it's very vivid memory. Yeah. So, it's your essence. You yeah. were born with it. Hot buttons and triggers, feeling trapped, stuck, or bored, feeling yeah. feeling shut down, cut off, or limited from yeah. options, um, being criticized or made to feel wrong, uh, which is, again, yeah. most, most people, um, being seen as dull or boring. Yeah. Yeah. I... I don't know that one as much. Like, I don't care if someone thinks that way, but I don't want to be that way. Yeah. Your core fear is of feeling emotional pain when deprived, trapped, limited, criticized, mm. or that you're going to miss out in a world full of abundance and exciting possibilities. Mm. Uh, you desire to be happy, core beliefs. There, there is a flip side to this one, which I don't have. Like, for example... There are many things that people find exciting that over the years I've been invited to. And I don't actually always, I, in fact, a lot of times I end up saying no to things and I'm okay with it, right? So like there are categories, uh, but but where it's things that I find interesting, then it, I'm all over this. So it's, yeah. so I won't go out of my way. There must be some other competing part of my personality that actually doesn't go too far down the line of like, yeah, let's board the train to Tokyo because I don't care. Like, let's just do it. Right. So for me, when I took the test, this was my top result usually. Uh, so, you know, that's notable. But it's interesting because in contrast to you, I would say that you're even higher. So even right. though all the tests were like, you're definitely a seven. That's really funny because for me, it's it's not as high, but it clearly is higher than you. Like right. it should have been higher. Again, when a practitioner looks at right. it, they can look at the nuances. Type eight is called the leader, the challenger, the boss, yep. the asserter, the controller, and the power person. Yep. This is the powerful and dominating type. 
eights see themselves as strong and powerful and seek to stand up for what they believe in. Characteristics, again, powerful, self-confident, decisive, justice-seeking, direct, strong, action-oriented, overly impactful. I don't know what that means. Uh, Seeks self-reliance, assertive, courageous, often a leader. Uh, So... Uh, me kind. I mean, def, I, I scored high on a lot of them. Um, I believe uh, it's actually mixed. When I took the test, I was mixed from like zero to a hundred. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but I would say that um, it's definitely my top four. This one came out the highest on every single one except one test. That's but- interesting because you know I think you have the the qualities of a leader, but you don't tend to lead. It depends on the context. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which okay, I could see that. Like in my family, for example, I take charge very often. Oh, uh, okay. In at work, I take charge all the fucking time. Oh, you do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, in 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 small ways, like in a meeting. Yeah. In large ways, like in a project, yeah. like you know these kinds of things. Oh, okay. So like, because a lot of times we're planning, like, hey, what kind of mushrooms are we gonna do next year? Because like dairy season starting, and like, I have to like be the one that steps up and be like, no, you, you this is what we're doing. Like, yeah. and like, oh, you know, that that is me. But I don't you, do it in every context. Can you give me a rundown of the types of mushrooms that you use? Yeah, there's like five basic types. We actually use a, a test called Mushroom Gram, uh-huh. and like to determine what's the best. Um, but at the same time, like you know, when we were in a band, like in none of my bands have I had to be like the dictator or something, you know, or like uh, I don't know about that, buddy. Well, okay, but I mean, you weren't like a dick, but um, you were definitely the leader of of the bands I was in with you. Okay, but at the same, okay, my definition, part of it is like the thing is, is I'm also an eight, so sure. I was also a leader. Okay, fair enough. So maybe. Uh, maybe that's fair. Yeah, fine, fine. Yeah, uh, but so, yeah, yes, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're both self-confident, decisive, yeah, powerful, which is a funny word, uh, assertive, action-oriented, self-reliant, direct. Uh, we're definitely that. When unhealthy. Oh, let me guess the sin on this one. What? Uh, wait, I see. I don't know that. I wish I knew all the words for the sin. But the the thing that I think is unhealthy here would be like. Uh, the bossiness part, right? Like two over. No, no, this one doesn't make a lot of sense. It's lust. Lust. Yeah. I, again, I think when you go into the spiritual side of this okay. or the numerology side of that this, one throws it's me. like you're trying to shove stuff in there. Now I do have a, a challenge with lust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I guess you could say like, well, Bill Clinton problem with lust, you sure. know, but it's like not, not every leader has a problem with lust. Sure. Yeah. Uh, when unhealthy, they will say to themselves, it's not okay to be vulnerable or to trust anyone. Yeah. To trust anyone. Um, again, I, kind of the that. bottom effect. There's a lot of people that suffer from that fear of being harmed or controlled. They can be dominating annoyingly. Yeah. I've they can, they can be in, impulsive, yeah, conf- <laughs> confrontational, uh, stubborn, excessive, yeah. violent fighting, eh, not violent, uh, being demanding, that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, um, you know, uh, so I guess this one kind of fits together. So I guess the the again, as we're going through this, it, it's making sense why some people really take this because it's like uh, if if someone was if I was less um, aware or something, 
And some, you know, I was 22 or something and someone, I probably even back then would have been like, oh yeah, I guess I could kind of see that. At the age of four, I remember I was playing with my friends outside and I came inside and I remember this, totally remember this to this day. I come inside, um, you know, to get like a drink of water or something. And my mom said, you're being really bossy. (laughs) And I was like, that concept, I remember it blew my mind that... That it, I remember thinking a, a whole new world had opened up to me because I was just acting spontaneously. Right. It's not like you were like, today I should be bossy. Yeah. Or even th- the notion of bossiness yeah. was foreign to me. But when she said that to me, suddenly this whole thing opened up to me of just like, oh, there's a thing called like uh, bossiness, which yeah. implies there's good and bad leadership. I mean, this not these words, yeah. but and that... And I would, re- and I was sort of immediately reflecting back on what's happening. Is like, but everyone was following my orders. <laughs> so, but so that's bad. And like, and I have to. I guess that now that I remember, the main message that I got was I have to manage my own personality. That, that that's what blew me away. Of just like, oh, so I have a. I have personality tendencies that will get in the way. I remember thinking that. What an insight at, at that the age had. of four, yeah. four. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, that was part of my five coming out—the <laughs> the cerebral, arrogant type. Um. So yeah. So uh, the so someone comes to me at age twenty-two, and you're like, you score high on type eight, and you're you know you're a natural leader, and you're you know you have this conversation. You're like, yeah, it's true. Okay, well, your essence is is one of leadership and confidence and strong. That's how you give to the world. That's your usefulness in the world. It's very useful to be that way. Right. But your shadow side is to be dominating and confrontational and impulsive and willful and being uh, sort of guarded to other people and not being vulnerable to other people and not yeah. trusting other people and not allowing yourself to be led, not allowing yourself to fall into someone's arms and ask for help. Yeah. Um, so this is the, this is the struggle you're going to be dealing with. Right, and right, how, right. You know, let's, how are we going to, and, and what sort of traumas did you go through as you enacted your essence growing up that led you to rely too much on the leader and not enough on these other aspects of balance in your life? If yeah. Dr. Joel out there, let me know if any of this is uh, <laughs> is like in line with at least partially what you might be telling your your clients. All right, the final type, type nine, is called the peacemaker, the mediator, and the peaceful person. Both you and I are saying no, we're not really like that. Yeah, that one came low on all but one test, and in the one that didn't come low, it was middle of the road. So this is the easygoing and self-effacing type. Nines nines like to keep a low profile and let the people around them set the agenda. So these people are easygoing, self-effacing, receptive, reassuring, agreeable, harmony-seeking, comfortable. Uh, And that's a key part of that. It's like they're not just reassuring and self-effacing because they're, they're afraid. They're actually... They're just innately comfortable. And I think that was kind of an insight to this personality mm-hmm. type. Because I know people like this where I I perceive them as being passive and afraid. But they uh-huh. might just be comfortable in their own skin. See. <laughs> they, they don't need to yeah. assert themselves. They're just kind of generally comfortable. you know. And I think that that's what these people are. Do you know any people yeah. like this? Uh, yeah, definitely. I've, I've, I've known people like this. I can think of someone right now that's in my life that's like that. Uh, but the 
thing is that when you were describing the words, at first I thought, yeah, I do some of that. But you're right. There's like a different angle to this. It's, yeah. They can I, I like that, that idea of like, if I'm at a party, am I just comfortable? I'm fine. Like, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not being a wallflower because I'm afraid. I just, I'm fine. I'm just comfortable in my own yeah. skin, I, and I don't need, and I don't have the impulse to assert yeah. myself. Or I'm just, uh, I'm just here. I don't even really have to observe. I'm just kind of like hanging out, you know. Yeah. They're steady. They see everything as being good, you know. They're just they then they seek peace and harmony. Uh, I knew people like this growing up, and they were often long distance runners. Oh, <laughs> I, and I had—I always had this because the best long distance runners that I knew growing up, grow, growing up, they were often what I perceived to be just kind of—I <laughs> mean, the word I would say, the judgmental side of me would be like they're kind of brain dead. Because <laughs> you know, to run for, to run like a full marathon, it really helps to not think much. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> you know, the, the more thinking, and I've actually thought that works against me, and because I've always been a terrible long distance oh. runner, because like thirty seconds in, my brain is racing, and I'm <laughs> thinking about all the pain, and I'm thinking about what I'd rather be doing, and and uh, and I'm noticing all the sensations, you know. Whereas, oh, if you were just kind of comfortable and stable and easygoing, and like you don't really. The like Forrest in- Gump. Forrest <laughs> Gump is this person. Right. The inputs don't really, they're not fast inputs. You know, it's just yeah. kind of like there's a little dulled on the input. Yeah. I would see them as brain dead, but looking at this, it, it's more just like they're just, they're just generally comfortable. Right. Uh, they're accepting, but when they're unhealthy, they'll believe that they can't assert themselves. And their sin is, uh, let's see, when they're unhealthy, what's left? they can't. Oh, see, I don't know. I don't know all the but names. the movie. No, no, that was the seven. That was seven. I know, but one of these, this no, one's in there. No, because that, that's the seven deadly sins. I know, but this one's in there, I think. Oh, okay. Gluttony was already there. Pride. Uh, we did lust. Uh, anger. Wrath. No. Sloth. Oh, sloth. Right, right, right. right. Is it sloth in seven? Sloth is in seven. Yeah. That's the guy that's like sitting there... Uh, um, like, do you think he's dead when they come in and all of a sudden he goes, <laughs> and it like gives you a heart attack in the movie theater. Yeah. And uh, why, why like, did he, how did he get him in that movie? Uh, he, or what was his, what was his problem? He was a child molester or something. Oh. And then he, he put him in this near coma for a year and fed him only the minimum nutrients through IVs, uh, to keep him alive. But like in this terrible state. Was he the one who's laying on the bed? Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know why sloth was the issue for him. He was forcing him to be slothful. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, fear of being disconnected. <laughs> they believe that to be loved, they must blend in. They can be sometimes stubborn. They can be too passive. They can also be conflict avoidant. Um, what's hard about being a nine is being judged and misunderstood for being placid and or indecisive. Huh. Like I would call them brain dead, but they're just, you know, being judged and misunderstood, uh, being critical of themselves for lacking initiative or discipline. They can be too sensitive to criticism. They can be confused about what they really want. Um, and other kinds of things. So, um, Let's see, other, how to get along with me. Um, I like to listen and to be of service, but I don't take advantage of this. Uh, 
listen. So I like to listen and be of service, but don't take advantage of this. Give me time to finish things and make decisions. It's okay to nudge me gently and non-judgmentally. Listen until I finish speaking, even though I meander a bit. So I think this actually does kind of get at something. I'm not quite entirely sure if this really fits the personality of the people I'm thinking of, but there there are people who who fit this personality who are they're kind of like on the opposite end of the spectrum of you and me mm-hmm. in that when they have a thought, it it takes them a long time to kind of form the words. Sure. And their brain, I think, just generally runs a little slower, less manic. And when they interface with people like us, we end up filling the space with a bunch of words. And it's frustrating for us. It's like, just talk. What are you trying to say? And it's frustrating to them because they're just like, how come you're not pausing? Yeah. You know, whereas for you and me, we'll just interrupt each other. So uh, I think I think it is kind of getting at something kind. <laughs> how come you're not stopping? <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Uh, okay. So so we went through that. Again. Sorry. I'm really confused about something. What I, I want to f- find out what are the... Uh, that's so typical of a seven. <laughs> I want to find out what are the missing, uh, what are the ones that they have that are not, because like the seven traditionally in Catholic lore is lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. So we, so they didn't do wrath, they did anger. Anger, fine. But what are the other two that they have? Uh, they could have doubled up on some, on some oh, of them. Maybe that's what they did. Um Although it didn't seem that way. But. Yeah, let's see here. Fear? Was fear, fear one Fear is not one of these. Oh, okay. They added fear. And greed? And greed is. Oh. Uh, envy. Envy is. Deceit. Deceit. Okay. So they added fear and deceit. Yeah. They just threw those in there. Okay. Okay. So to review, I believe that I absolutely fit seven, but not as much as Birdo. I absolutely fit three. I absolutely fit eight and, for the most part, five. I I also feel pretty close to one, two, and four. So th- three, uh, so let's review, because uh, I want to take notes on which ones you were, Berto. Are you an achiever and kind of narcissistic? Yeah, but I, in the end, I, I, I'm going to go with eight, seven, five. Eight, seven, five. Yeah, okay. or seven, eight, five, either one. Eight, seven, seven eight, five, five, or seven, eight, five. Okay, so and that's that's not just by what the numbers here, but by our conversation as well. So that's interesting because um, I'm a seven eight five as well, and but I'm also a three. I'm a three. I'm a three five seven eight. <laughs> You're a five seven eight, uh, and that's interesting because I, that doesn't make a lot of sense. So the the question that I would have as a, a skeptic of this model. I would say is the five seven eight actually just one personality, you know, uh, or the or even the three five seven eight or something. Anyway, because um, remember there were others that that rose. Like there was one test that gave me type one very high, but in talking through it all, all of the ones we talked through seven. When you were reading through seven, it was like okay, I'm definitely a seven. Yeah, eight. I'm mostly an eight. And then five had aspects, so I would go like definitely super strong seven and eight, and then five, and then all the others had aspects that well, well not all the others, but like at least four, three, a few of the others had aspects, but I, I think the ones that I I felt personally were the closest were seven, eight, and a bit of five. So the trick then is, f- and and tell me if therapy has sort of inadvertently done this anyway, is trying to emphasize your personality. Uh, pros and trying to 
heal from your wounds so you don't have to enact the personality cons, right? So has your therapy focused on, or your life well-being management been around acknowledging your leadership, acknowledging your funness and your enthusiasm and your, um, wait, I lost my place here. Uh, where were we? Uh, uh, acknowledging your 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 leadership, your adventurism, your optimism, your cerebralness, while trying to avoid being impatient and sensitive and bossy and detached. Huh. Well, I guess not explicitly in therapy. Uh, obviously, implicitly, we definitely worked on my sort of manicness and desire for 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 uh sort of the the thing that we worked on a lot was my my desire for uh me to be in charge of everything and, and I'm talking about it like at a family and personal level and things like that but it wasn't we certainly never used any that I remember any personality type discussion yeah well I think your therapist wasn't really into that yeah um, but uh but I, you know I could see it I could see it uh inadvertently addressing those issues yeah you know um, and I wonder what it would have been like if it was more direct along those lines, you know, um, cause, cause I could see, you know, I'm just trying to think about what I know about you. So growing up, you, let's say, you know, you were born, which I could see, and it's definitely reflected in the pictures I've seen of you as a kid. <laughs> you seem like a very adventurous kid, very outgoing, right. wanting to have fun, you know, Let's let's jump on the thing. Okay, yeah. I'm going to jump on the thing. Yeah. And the shadow side to the seven is to be impatient and insensitive. Let's just focus on the insensitive part. Just like too focused on fun, not enough focused on your own needs and other people's needs. Yeah. And the traumas that you went through would cause you to become kind of fixated on the fun aspects of the seven rather than acknowledging the full balance of mm-hmm. one's life. So that kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, that does. Yeah. For example, uh, you had the example of you coming in from playing and your mom saying, hey, I think you're being too bossy. Uh, I, I think I've told this before in the podcast. W- one time I was walking up the stairs at my grandma, my grandma Liti's house, and I overheard the uh, the maid, because in those days they they always had a maid, I overheard the maid talking to her in her room as I was walking up. And I, I was walking quietly, so they hadn't heard that I was there. And it, it, she was talking about me, and she was basically complaining. She's like, he's just always demanding, and he's like just, you know, he wants this, and he wants that, and all these kinds of things. And I was like, oh, and I felt so bad. I was like, oh, geez, I didn't realize I was. Um, so, you know, so that that was there. Clearly, I was... So totally that's sensitive to the and the impatient side of the seven. Yeah. So you know, you could see a four-year-old who's very uh, stimulus-oriented, wanting to do things and have things and have fun, and and when something gets in the way, you could imagine being impatient and insensitive to other people's feelings, and being very demanding. Like you know, I want you know, where is that thing? And right. Well, and this memory is from when I was forty-three. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't have a lot of time, but I'm just going to race through the history. And obviously, I'm not a, a, a scholar in this area. But um, 
there's a lot of there's actually fighting infighting lawsuits regarding who has ownership over <laughs> oh no over enneagram uh, between the, or at least historically there was. Oh, okay. Um, some people say this goes back to Sufi mystics, Muslim mystics. Uh, the number nine has always had some kind of special thing to Turkish uh, Muslims and mystics in this area. And so they think that's, you know, the right, origins. Uh-huh. Also, it's been attributed to ancient Babylonia, uh, Pyth- Pythagoreans, uh Desert Fathers or the Christian Hermits, Kabbalists, which are religious mystics, and, and many other groups. But the uh, the earliest mention of Enneagram was from this, what they call an occultist in the literature. His name is P.D. Ospensky. P. Diddy? And his teacher, he said that his teacher taught him the Enneagram, uh, and his teacher was a Greek-American, also labeled an occultist, by the name of George Gurdjieff. And he said that he learned the Enneagram from Sufi masters, so huh. from Muslim mystic masters. Um, and so the first writer, Oz Pensky, uh, in a book that is kind of the you know grandfather of Enneagram, he wrote he wrote one of the quotes. He writes, "All knowledge can be included in the Enneagram." What man cannot put in the Enneagram makes books and libraries entirely unnecessary. Everything can be included and read in the Enneagram. So it it wasn't uh, a very subtle uh, idea when (laughs) he originated this, you know, and it's, it's, and that's the way religious people talk and mystics, you know, will talk. It's just like everything is in Jesus love, you know, it's just, there's a certain, uh, elevation of the idea, and so the enneagram and <clears throat> and, uh, and the ideas behind it. <clears throat> now, to be clear, what this guy was talking about is not the types that we were talking about earlier. Oh, okay. What they're talking about is that pentagram looking. Oh, I see. Some sort of mystical concept about these nine yeah. points, and and, and that uh, it had to do with, and it's complicated, but it has to do with like the human essence and all this kind of oh, stuff. All right. Then Oscar Ichazo, Ichazo from South America uh-huh. uh, in the 1960s, mm. I think he's in his 30s. He starts he starts finding these and he starts to uh, revamp or modify this because of the 60s. The humanistic, the you know, the human development, hu- human improvement movement was really in full swing, and so. He uh, connected it. I, I think that's how it all came about. But anyway, so he kind of merged it with humanistic thought and also with like personality thought. And some say he discovered this theory of personality while under the influence of a spirit. Um, and he, you know, was connected uh, with the Archangel Gabriel. I heard some. Uh, like was it vodka or? <laughs> and then uh, another uh, source said that he had some connection with the archangel Met- Metraton. Methamphetamine, Met- Met- I think. While he was high on mescaline. Oh, I was joking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, he denies this. He says that okay. he just studied people. But so there's a lot of. So that's. The, again, this is why I think a lot of psychologists kind of shy away from this because sure. it's just like. What you know? Sure. So there's reports of this theory coming from some guy, it, you know, like Joseph Smith kind of thing. It's just like yeah. I I was on mescaline and it just popped into my head. Yeah, you know? the 1970s it spreads throughout the Catholic communities in South America and beyond. So I think that's when it first what? became kind of in, infused with 
uh, Christianity, you know. And the system was called Arica. And Arica. after a city in Chile, huh. uh, he opened a school. There were, it, it peaked in the 19... So it grew from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, kind of, and then it's kind of been on the decline ever since. And I think the internet kind of gave it a resurgence. Hmm. Uh, currently, it seems to have some presence in New York City and, and Europe, uh, but other places, a lot of people use it at work, like the Myers-Briggs. Um, and from a website, Enneagram Central, the following quote, the fundamental premise of the Enneagram is that each of us has one dominant energy that drives us in everything we do. This dominant energy is our greatest gift. So we use it too much and it becomes our chief fault or sin. This energy, like a prevailing wind that bends a tree permanently, sculpts our interior geography and shapes our entire life. So it's poetic words basically saying what I was saying before. Of just like, if you use your, um, your adventurer optimism uh, enthusiasm too much, yeah. then you become impatient and sensitive, and it becomes kind of a fixated part of your personality where you're just generally impatient and insensitive. Could you uh, help me overcome my ethical dilemmas so that I could start a church? Because I feel like I could grab some of these concepts and really run with them and just be like, yeah, and add a little bit of mysticism and modern and technology and all this stuff. Oh, man, it would be awesome. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into the critique, which I've already done a little bit. I just want to briefly go over this because we don't have a lot of time. But more broad, you know, is the measure of Enneagram valid? Is it scientifically valid? Well, the broader question is, do we have any scientifically valid personality measure at all? Well, it's we have, you know, obviously in my field, it's been a big interest to, yeah. and lots of time and effort has been spent studying it and writing about it and thinking about it and talking about it and teaching it and practicing it in terms of this idea of personality. You're this type and you're this type or you have these tendencies or because of this borderline personality and because of this yeah. narcissistic personality and because of your type A personality and because of your histrionic person, your psychopathic personality. There's a lot of talk about that, yeah. but it it's so it, it's such humans are so complex and so hard to nail down and so hard to predict that. Uh, because that's the whole notion of just like a personality, if you can met, you, you know, if it is, if it lends itself to science, you should be able to determine one's personality, mm-hmm. determine one individual's personality or a group of people. You know, these 50 people are all psychopaths and you should be able to predict anything about their future behavior. And that's really hard to do. <laughs> um, one, because a lot of the things that we're talking about, like to be glib, what does it mean to be glib? You know, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder. Um, and we often are relegated to self-report measures. So when was the last time you lied to someone? You know, like, well, it's hard for them to be truthful about that. So it's really hard to measure. It's very ambiguous. And some people have even come forward and say, look, we're all trying to search for something that just isn't there. Yeah. We're too malleable. We're too variable. Uh, yes, there are some tendencies, and globally you can make some predictions. Americans are likely to eat at McDonald's X amount of times over the next sure. over the next year. Um, you, Umberto, are likely to be happy at some point in your in your future. <laughs> uh, uh, so there's general things you can say, but. 
it's really hard to do. And in our field, the one kind of anemic thing we've managed to actually uh, measure as valid for the most part is the big five is, you know, uh, openness, conscientiousness, extrovertedness, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Mm -hmm. And to be frank, it's not a very useful model. (laughs) Like for you and me to identify how, uh, you know, much on each scale we are yeah is mildly useful i mean it's you can be oh that's interesting but then what you know and you know you can start applying that to different other research that will tie different things like you're more likely to have this attachment style or this kind of thing but it's pretty general and the uh our field is just it's just really hard to lock down so so, you know, is the Enneagram any different than Myers-Briggs or my method of personality assessment mm-hmm. or the personality disorder assessments in the DSM or all these other things? You know, yeah. I, I, I have or to Cosmo. say. Cosmo. <laughs> yes, right. Or Hufflepuff or the sorting hat. I have to say, well, no, you know, it, it, it's, it's all in the same category of uh, dubious evidence, yeah. but for some people can be used for, you know, very useful ways, but it takes a very nuanced, intelligent, experienced person to really walk through the model with someone, you know? I I mean, Uh, I think, I think the one thing probably that is fair is that through our human experience, I think we all come to realize that there are people that are distinctly different from other people. And I don't mean physically, I mean, in the way they behave. And therefore, it seems plausible that you could. Oh, and, and and the other thing that I think we all come to realize is, um, there are patterns that we notice that we then start actually being able to model our our decisions around because we start recognizing, oh, okay, I've met this kind of person before, therefore I'm going to modify my behavior a little bit. We do it sort of instinctually. And it's something we've just developed. So I think there is something to this at that gut level of like, yeah, I get a sense that people are different and they come in patterns. And so maybe this is helpful from that perspective. Right. And we've already gone into, you know, low retest reliability for some studies. Also, we've also gone into like, is this really a valid category? Like, you know. Um, the other thing I've been referring to the Barnum effect. So there's a lot of different experiments on the Barnum effect. So essentially, uh, and all you got to do is Google it and you can see it. Essentially what you do is you, uh, whether you're saying it's astrology or some other system, uh, you take a bunch of people, 20 people, and you say, I need you to take this test. It's going to test your personality. And there's a bunch of questions on there and they answer the questions. You take all of their answer sheets and you, you secretly (laughs) throw them away and then you give them all in an envelope. You say that our test has figured you out. <laughs> and you just give them a random result. You give them the same result. All oh, tw- everyone gets the same result. All 20 people. Got it, got it. But they read it in private. Yeah. And then you ask them, how close did this test get you? And if you, if you word it right, uh, you will get 90% of the people will go, oh, my God, this test nailed me. <laughs> How did you know that about me based on those questions? That is incredible. And then you show them, we gave everyone the same answer. We didn't even look at the test results. And they're like, well, wait, but how? So the question is, how does that happen? Well, 
they often don't explain that, and I want to explain it here. I want to. It's sure. it's a bit of a speculation, but and I might have said this before, or I was telling my wife. I don't remember, but basically, there's certain things you can say to anyone, and or no, there's certain things that most of us, if not all of us, are walking around experiencing, but we're ashamed of it, or it's not something we normally talk about, and thus we believe we might be one of the only people experiencing it. (laughs) And so when I say to you something like, you procrastinate because you strive for perfection. Right. Most people will agree with that. Or most people, if you told them that was something that was discovered about them in a test, they'd be like, yeah, that kind of fits. Or you have a great deal of unused capacity. (laughs) Of course, of course. Yeah, I always knew I had more potential. Disciplined and self-controlled on the outside you tend to be worrisome and insecure on the inside. Ah, sure. Yeah, most people are self-controlled on the outside <laughs> and tend to be worrisome and insecure. You pride yourself as an independent thinker and do not accept other statements without satisfactory proof. Yeah, I need proof. Yeah, most people pride themselves as an independent thinker. You have a tendency to be critical of yourself. Yeah, I'm too harsh on myself. Again, uh, (laughs) at times you are extroverted, while at other times you are introverted. That's so true. Yeah. So, as you know, astrology can be this way, uh, and sometimes some of the bad Enneagram tests can be this way, too. Something bad is going to happen to you, but something good is also going to happen to you at some point in the next some amount of time. (laughs) But, as I think we demonstrated, in the right hands, the Enneagram or schema therapy or just a therapist's own model of personality development uh, in the right hands can be used in a way that can be quite powerful and quite helpful. So uh, sorry, if I may, because at the core, if what you're doing is you're asking questions about behavior and then talking about the thoughts around those behaviors and what it may mean, what it might not mean, all the, that is therapy. Like that is, right. yeah. Uh, another criticism is that it's basically in certain areas of Enneagram. It's just numerology. And here's a quote. The drawing of the Enneagram is based upon a belief in the mystical properties of the numbers seven and three. It consists of a circle with nine equidistant points on a circumference. The points are connected by two figures. One connects in the, and this is purposely kind of jumbled sure. sounding because it is. One connects the numbers one to four, to two, to eight, to five, to seven, and back to one. The other connects three, six, and nine. The one, four, two, eight, five, seven sequence is based on the fact that dividing seven into one yields an infinite repetition of the sequence one, four, two, eight, five, seven. In fact, dividing seven into any whole number, uh, not a multiple of seven, will yield an infinite repetition of the sequence one, four, two, eight, five, seven. Also, 142,857 times 7 equals 999,999. And of course, 1 divided by 3 yields an infinite sequence of 3s. The triangle joining points 3, 6, and 9 links all the numbers of the circle divisible by 3. So that's part, for some people, as that one guy on Reddit said... When you go to trainings, they will present this as like evidence as to why the Enneagram personality system work is is valid. It's so powerful, yeah, yeah, because it has all these what I believe to be interesting uh, number uh, details. Like there's there's a lot of really interesting math in the Enneagram, sure. but it doesn't necessarily have any you know it, you can't graph that onto human. Uh, well, uh, and what per- is their point? 
what is what is what are well those? they'll always take that leap right you know they'll wow you with like uh-huh. you know any number look at that look at yeah. that when i do the calculator yeah. and you know and and the mystics connected the fact that we are all I, you know i can't imagine the leap but are they but saying that the personality types have that kind of connection so uh yes so oh, okay. they will say that there's a connection between three, three six, six and, and nine, nine and there's a connection between one, four, and two, and four, two, and eight, and you know, oh, I see. Okay. and because that's where the lines are drawn, you know. Um, now, what that connection means will mean different things to different interpretations. So, Question, so, Professor? Yeah. Did uh, did they find the definitions of one through nine in some cave, or did someone come up with the definitions after they already knew about the enneagram design? Uh, uh, <laughs> you see what yeah, I'm saying? Like yeah. they came up with the what what one means, what two means, what three means right. in in the in the personalities. So if I already know that there are these properties, why wouldn't I make it nice and neat, right? Yeah, it'd be different if they had independently somehow realized. Oh my God! Look at the, we never knew these kind of right. Yeah, it, it's now if we look at Freud. There were problems that he said as well, and sure. our entire field, quote unquote, derives from Freud. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of Mormons who will look back at the birth of Mormonism and go like, no, that was ridiculous, but I still believe in my mm-hmm. faith and my community. So we don't have to necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater when we uh, look at certain origins uh, and uh, our our laughing at it kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does mean that uh, that origin story is still infused in a lot of Enneagram practitioners yeah. because they're purists, so to speak. And so you're going to get, again, you're going to get a wide variety of presentations from, <laughs> from things that you and I might respect to things that you and I might not respect. Right. But that's the same with Freudian thought. It's the same with Myers-Briggs. It's the same with Jung. It's the same with anything. You're going you're gonna to get a wide variety. And that's my final word on the Enneagram. What's yours, Berto? My final word is I'm going to develop the pie method. Uh, it's going to be a circle. And on the circle, I'm going to put a few personality types. And later I'm going to show you that personality three, and then one, and then four, and then one again, and then five, create the number pi, which is associated to the circle, and that contains all the knowledge of all the universe. What what kind of pie is it? Is it like a pumpkin pie? Cherry or? pie. Uh, what's your favorite pie? Actually, I'd say cherry pie is a strong contender. I like Strong contender. I like uh, chocolate pudding pies. Oh, or like peanut... No. <gasps> Stacy makes like a peanut... Peanut butter kind of cream. It's like a peanut butter pudding. That sounds delicious. Right? But I'll tell you my favorite. I just forgot. What am I talking about? Guanabana Guanabana merengue pie. Merengue pie. That's like the guanabana fruit from Colombia in this meringue form. Oh, it's the best in the world. Yeah. Your your seven really kicks in when it comes to food. Yeah. Like you'll go to a restaurant and you want, you you define (laughs) your... Uh, you're ordering, you know, you'll, you'll get the drink menu and you're just like, what's the most adventurous? I don't want anything boring. I want the, I want the weirdest. And you'll even talk to the waiter and you'll be like, how can you make this drink more weird? weird. I've had situations where they warn me about like, I'm like, Oh, this one sounds interesting. Like, you know, the IPIC in Redmond, they had this one called the Illegalito. When they first did it, the waiter's like, I'm going to be very honest with you. 
like that one a lot of times gets sent back it, it doesn't and I'm like I want it absolutely and you bet I didn't send it back and I loved it that's that's so that's classic seven classic classic seven well that does it for that episode of psychology in Seattle uh, I am Kirk as a three seven eight as a three five seven eight with a wing of one two four signing off please take care of yourself because seven eight five deserve it. <laughs>